Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 317. We've just entered the saddest period of the Jewish calendar called the Three Weeks. Bein Hamtzorim is based on the verse in the book of Echa, Lamentations. Bein Hamtzorim means between the straits, between dire straits. Meitzar comes from the word constraint, boundaries, limitations. And based on that verse, it makes sense because this is the time when on the 17th of Tammuz, the walls of Jerusalem were breached. In some opinions, both of the first temple and then the second temple, but at least the second temple, according to all opinions. And three weeks later to the day, so that's why three weeks was the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash on Tishabav. And ever since, it's been called this period, a period of mourning and grieving and remembering those sad events as the Mishnah in the Talmud and Tainus tells us the five tragic events that happened on Shabbos of the Tamas, the five tragic events that happened on Tishabav. Now, why we remember events after so many years, we know, God forbid, when somebody sits Shiva for the loss of a loved one, you sit seven days and not more. You're not allowed to sit more. And here we're grieving and mourning for almost 2,000 years. So, though it doesn't apply the same laws of Shiva, but we don't do weddings and music, there are limitations that are very similar. But yet, how long can you send you grieve? So it's very clear and understandable, based on even a broader and bigger question, and that is, in Judaism in general, we don't focus on grief and on loss and suffering, even though we experience it and we acknowledge it and we are sensitive to it. Part of the human condition is the painful situations, but we don't dwell on it because it's never an end in itself. It always is an opportunity for greater growth. That's the given. It's a rule based on the principle that God is a good God. And even when something negative happens, and even if it uh, has good reason to happen, it ultimately is for the better good of the person, of the human condition, the human race. This doesn't justify suffering. But we understand that we never, the end of the story is never the suffering conclusion. So the three weeks for all the representation of negative events, it's an opportunity to tra- be transformed into positivity, which is as the verse says in the Rambam cites, even before Hasidus, the end of the laws of tainis, of fasting, that these days, referring to the, fi- the fasts, the fast days, including the 17th of Tammuz and Tisha B'av, this 9th of Av, will be transformed. Not just they'll be eliminated. Not just Mizbatlu, they will be eliminated. Yehovchu, they'll be transformed into to celebration. But it, they came because of a destruction. They came because of negative reasons. How did they suddenly become a holiday? Because in every negative, there's a deeper positive. Firstly, in the gavra, in the person, that when you're deprived of something and you feel a lack, it causes you to be motivated to want more, to dig deeper. And from the cheftza point of view, meaning from the experience itself, as I said before, there's no such thing as a negative, enti- a negative experience as an end in itself. Because the very fact that human beings can fall and can have setbacks 
and can make major mistakes and can sin, which is the reason that causes the destruction of the temple, destruction in general. Think of it psychologically. When people behave in the wrong way, it creates, uh, yes, it creates damage. But the mere fact that we're capable of that is not our creation. God created the world with flawed human beings, with not perfect human beings, with always have the potential to slip and to wander off and to betray themselves, as we see with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So though we're responsible when we make the wrong choice and we make the right choice, but the whole setup is one where we live in a world that is imperfect and the mission is to perfect it. So therefore, you have to say when something goes wrong, it's not the end of the story. It's part of the deeper purpose. And in the root of it all, now we'll use Hasidic terminology, the root of it all, as the Arizal says, is the tzimtzumarishin, the divine concealment, the great concealment, the secret of, the, of, the, of that primordial tzimtzum. What concealment is it? In order to allow for room, for space, of an independent consciousness, which would ultimately become our consciousness, you cannot have the divine consciousness completely overwhelming everything. At least not in our understanding of it. So what the divine does, it conceals that presence from us, allowing us to emerge. We now have an independent consciousness. The purpose of it is to be aligned with the divine consciousness, but sometimes it doesn't remain aligned. Those that want to make a mistake will make a mistake and misunderstand the tzimtzum and think of the tzimtzum as, uh, think of the existence rather as an agnostic universe. But but deep beneath it all lies tremendous light, tremendous potential. Again, both from the human perspective that when you're deprived of something, you feel lack, it motivates you to want more. And from the perspective of the actual reality is that the deepest darkness comes from the deepest light. Because to conceal on that level requires a far more powerful energy than to reveal. And when we reverse the process and transform this symptom by looking at our own lives and saying, I do not choose to be an independent entity and just do whatever I like. I will not succumb to my selfish and narcissistic and self-interest-driven desires, but rather I will align myself to a higher purpose, a higher cause. We have then transformed the tzimtzum in our personal lives. We did not buy into it. We transformed that darkness into a greater light. And the more we don't see the deeper purpose of life, the more it motivates us, the more we want. So this is true all year round, but especially during the three weeks, which is called Bein HaMtsarim, Metsarim. Metsarim means, as I said, boundaries, constraints, limitations. Fill in the blanks. It's every form of deprivation, every form of, of fear and insecurity. All the demons. All the uncertainties. Especially nowadays, in dealing with the pandemic, COVID-19, which hasn't gone away yet, as we see. All of that is a form of a metzar. Sometimes we use the Mitzrayim for it. A metzar. It's a limit. And we want to use that as a springboard. Because when you feel constrained, you can either give up or feel frustrated and become immobilized or paralyzed, God forbid. Or you can say, oh, I feel pressured. I'm going to rise to the occasion and become an even greater person. Resistance brings out the best. 
in us as well. You press and squeeze an olive, you receive olive oil. We're much stronger than we think we are. So bin hametzer karosika, from my constraints, from my dire straits, I call out to you. And what is the response? Not a narrow response, a constrained one. Anani bamerchavka. You've responded to me with your expansiveness. Because there's that powerful force that comes when a person feels deep need. When we are feeling comfortable, feeling prosperous, feeling successful, we usually become apathetic. We're not driven quite the same way. So that is one of the deeper lessons and personal lessons Chassidus applied to the three weeks. And of course, it applies very well to these times because the three weeks is exactly what we're all going through in a certain way. Ametzar, we're being limited. We can't travel where we like. We can't plan as we would have planned. We're limited in mobility. Our schedules, our routines, our work, school, children, summer plans. It's all in the state of Mitzarim right now. But that's meant to bring out the best in us. And that's what we have to use this period in time. So this lesson is extremely apropos to our times now, the lesson of the three weeks. It's also the week of Matis Masse. Matis Masse. This is the last two chapters in the fourth book of the Torah, of Bamidbar, the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. And it's, it's a combined chapter, Matis Masse. And therein lies the two key secrets to dealing with all challenges. Now, of course, there are many methodologies and many tools and many approaches, but there are two key things that this, cha- this double chapter teaches us. But let's preface it with a question, a common question the Rebbe would ask often. Matis and Mase are two chapters, yes, and they follow one, follows the other, but a name of a chapter captures the essence of whatever that chapter is about, just like the name of a person. So even though on one hand a name seems to be an extreme, you don't need a name if there's no one else around, but a name, in the language of is the channel through which energy enters into the object that is named by that name. And the same is with the chapters. Though we don't know exactly who gave the names, but it became part of our custom, meaning Yisrael, to call the chapters by these names. So the names are, are, in every case, they are one of the first words of the Torah. But there are often different words that can be chosen. And yet, one of them is chosen, matis in this case, and masi. When you think of the meaning of the names, so you think, since they come together, they should have something in common. They actually have opposite meanings. The word matis comes, is referring to the tribes. The tribes have two names, matis and shvatim. They also refer to two types of states. A mata is a hard staff. It's like a rod, or like a walking stick, that's, but it's hard, it's been hardened. A shevet is a softer, more flexible branch before it's been hardened. When you dry it up and it becomes a hard stick, you can lean on it. A shevet refers to something, a branch that still uh, is, is the exterior, still will bend in the wind. And each one has their quality. But matis is referring to 
a type of unwavering stand. It's how the Shvatim, the tribes, as they are in a place when they are warriors or standing upright and strong. When they're called Shvatim, it's referring more when they're in the flexible mode. There's an expression. A person should always be rach, meaning soft, flexible, like a, uh, like a stalk, like a shavit, and not kosher ka'arez, and not strong and unwavering and un- inflexible like a cedar, strong tree. But then on the other hand, sometimes you need to be strong, fortitude, strength. Mase, the next chapter, means travels. These are the travels of the Jewish people from when they left Egypt, the 42 journeys they took until they arrived to the east bank of the River Jordan. And that's what the entire chapter. Mase means movement. Matis means standing strong. How do these two come together? Interestingly, there's another two chapters that have a similar, a similar meaning. Nitzavim and Vayelach, which we read usually right before Rosh Hashanah. Depends when they're connected, when they're sometimes separate. Nitzavim means to stand strong. Vayelach means to walk, to move. And he went. And the answer is that in life, which one is most, more necessary? To stand strong in your values, your positions, not to, be, not to waver, not to compromise, or to be flexible. Which one is the one? You start thinking about it, you say, one second. Each one has something the other doesn't have, precisely. There are times that you have to be very strong and stalwart and inflexible, and there are times you need to be very flexible and it's about a journey. It's about mobility. Where do we find a good example for both? A tree. A tree trunk and its roots. You want to be matis. You don't want them to be wavering and shaking. That's the foundation. The foundation of a home, you want to be solid, and you don't want to find out that it's shaking and that you can't rely on it. But on the other hand, the tree, as it grows, it expands. It's always growing. The branches, and the branches break into further branches. And if it's a fruit tree, the branches, well, any tree will also bear leaves. If it's a fruit tree, the leaves, they will bear fruit. And you'll say, which one is it? Is a tree a strong, inflexible foundation, or is it growing? You'll say, they're both necessary, and they're both interdependent. A tree with unwavering roots will bear beautiful fruits. So the more solid you are, the more flexible you can be. It all comes down to where you have to apply that. When we talk about, for example, Jewish law, halacha, most people think halacha is very rigid. This is the law, and that's it. You can't do anything about it. That's what halacha is. But interesting, halacha also comes from the word halicha. Halicha means movement. It says halichas elam loy, altikra halichas el halachis. And we know from the Shalom, when it's an al-tikra, meaning don't read it this way, read it a different way, it means in addition to that way. But halach is rigid. Here's the key. Yes, the law is exactly to do this. Shabbos is coming. This is what you need to do. These are the laws of Pesach. These are the laws of prayer. These are the laws of the offerings. These are the the specific laws. But the laws are not meant to be dogma. They're not meant to be just locked. They're meant to be alive and passionate. The kavana of a mitzvah 
is like the branches. You're meant, to, you're meant to add enthusiasm, passion, intention, dynamic halachas. So the laws don't change, but the way you do them should be always changing in the sense in a good way, tailored, unique. Every Shabbos should be a different type of experience. Where do you find a good example? Music. Musical notes, there's only that many musical notes. You can't add new notes. Just like you can't add new halachas. But you can play the notes in a way that's very dead and hollow and empty. Or someone else plays the same notes and it comes alive. And you yourself can play them different ways. So we're not talking about changing the notes. We're talking about playing them with different intention, with different nuances, with different emphasis, different intonations, expressing the true heart and soul. You don't want it to be static. So in real life, you need mate samase. You need the unwavering connection because that's what keeps you strong in times of crisis, in times of pandemics, in times of uncertainty. In Beinam Tzadim, you need to have strong foundations. And you need to dig deeper faith, a deep connection to a higher purpose. And that does not waver. And that's when you need it most when things are, when there's a storm brewing. On the other hand, life, what is life like if you just have an unwavering foundation? You need to have branches and fruits and growth and mobility. And one is dependent on the other. When you have strong foundations, you then have the confidence to explore different ways. That's a sign of life. You're always being creative. So on one hand, in this period of time, we need to strengthen and reinforce our our, our belief systems, our values. But then we have to be innovative. How do we apply those values now that people are less mobile? So we can be mobile in spirit. You call people, you text them, you social media them. All different ways that we reach out to each other. So it's a constant process of having solid values, unwavering matis, but at the same time innovative ways of implementing it, of experiencing it in new dynamic and passionate and filled with life, vitality. So there you have lessons from this chapter and from this period in time for our times today and for all time, to be honest. So timeless lessons. With that, let us go through some questions. And um, let me begin with a little, um, some, some housekeeping announcements. So this is My Life Because It Is Supplied. Those of you familiar with this, this is already 317th episode. Those that are here for the first time, and I always welcome all these new people. Almost weekly we receive emails and messages of, from, from, from many of you who have just discovered this program, so I welcome you. And I welcome everyone for that matter, but especially those that are not familiar. We have a special dedicated website called chassidusapply.com where you can find the archives of all previous episodes. There you can subscribe to receive emails, reminders. You can download podcasts and uh, all f- on all form- platforms of these programs. And we go through questions that are asked by you, that are submitted there in an anonymous form. Please feel t- free to take advantage. A completely anonymous form. You can ask any question. Nothing is off limits. And we answer them. I have many backup questions, to be very honest. But that is very much due also to what has been going on in the last few months in COVID-19 and the other upheavals of our time. 
So that has dominated, obviously, because that's what's on people's minds. But I assure you that all the questions will be addressed each in their time. So please write, please communicate, please share your critique, your positive comments. Everything is welcome. And I try to read them as they come in. That site, you'll also find more material, which is other Hasidic applied materials. There are classes there, Samarvov, and I am based especially because I give now an, a, week, a daily new class every day, both on YouTube and on Zoom, that you can uh, join every day, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find all that information at HasidusApplied.com. We also have a contest that we are marking now and finishing up. Yes, we're in the process. We've resumed working on it. And we'll let you know as soon as we're finished. We did around two-thirds of it before the pandemic broke in March. And now we're just finishing the last third, both of the creative entries that came in, as well as the, 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 the essays, which is, of course, the flagship part of the essay contest, which began as an essay contest. But now we also have a creative track. So you'll hear about that. Okay. Um, with that, uh, let me say this as well, that uh, I want to cross-reference on this topic of the three weeks to episodes 74 and 75, 170, 171, 218 and 219, 269 and 270. Yes. Okay. Now, a few questions, some connected to our times, and I'm trying to starting to go back to questions that are not necessarily relevant to this moment, but frankly, most of these questions are really uh, relevant to all times because they're about the human condition and the challenges and the issues we all face and have to deal with on a daily basis, or on an ongoing basis. So here's the question. Should we be praying also for non-Jews during this pandemic? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. My question for you today is as follows. In light of the return of the pandemic in many states on one day, in many states, to the point that on one day there were 50,000 new cases, may no person know, of, know from it. So in the past few months, we've been praying, saying Tehillim, Psalms, and other prayers for ourselves, our loved ones, and for Klal Yisrael, for the general Jewish community. That Hashem should protect us all, God should protect us all, as Jews in every situation, we dive into Hashem. So my question basically is this. In light of the situation in the U.S. and around the world, as Jews, do we have an obligation to pray for the world, as well for the nations of the world, that Hashem should protect them as well and bring healing to the world? Or perhaps it's not our job to pray for the nations of the world, for after all, they haven't been too nice to us throughout the exiles. What is the Torah's view on this? And did the Rebbe speak about this topic? I hope you can discuss this on Slocha Rabbah, Surah Tevis Mashiach now. Yes. So yes, actually we do have an obligation to pray for everybody. Now there's actually a verse in the Yeshaya that says, Basi based fill the kola amim. It's actually we'll say it in the Haftada in next not next week, in the week of Dvorim. Um, and uh, that's Shabbos Chazain before Tishabov. And we do have an obligation because the whole world is created by God, and it's important that we pray, we pray for the peace of the kingship, for the kingdom, for the government, and we pray for everybody, because that's what we want. We want a world that will be eliminate 
a world that is, that where disease and death and pain and suffering will be eliminated. People who have done things that are inappropriate, whether to the Jewish people or to others, this is between them and God. Our job is to pray. As a matter of fact, the Medrash says that had the nations of the world known how much the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple, protects them, and the prayers of the Jews help them, they would have surrounded the Temple with legions to protect it from being destroyed. So the fact is, yes, we pray for everyone. I mean, our own families, obviously there's a certain obligation to, to pray for your family or your community, but I've heard the expression, so you say that when you have to give money for charity, it says you have to give to the poor people in your city because they're, they're close to you. is divine providence. God put them near you, you're responsible. And it says also to the paupers that are not Jewish, or whatever the main reason is, but the, 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 but the bottom line is, of course, especially when you take into account Sheva Mitzvah B'nei Neich, the seven Noahide laws, that were obligated, as the Rambam writes, and Paskins, Halach, in the end of eighth, chapter 8 of laws of, of uh, Hilchus Malachim, the laws of kings, that we are responsible, just as we receive the Torah and all the 613 mitzvahs, we're also responsible for Matan Torah was given to us the obligation to reach out and inspire the non-Jewish world. So it makes sense that we, as we, if we're obligated to inspire them, we're also going to be praying for them that they should be inspired and they should serve God well. Remember, when the non-Jewish world follows the Sheva Mitzvahs, they, they create a refined world, which is also good for everybody and prepares the world for the Geula, for the redemption. So for all my answers, yes, we don't distinguish. Now, especially considering that this pandemic does not make distinctions between Jew and non-Jew, or between black and white, or between people in general. So to pray, you're praying that all people should be protected. Would be, I mean, it can't make any sense to pray just for one group because we're all affected by each other. But that's uh, just as an aside. The main point I want to make is, yes, we have, that is what we're here for, to be compassionate people, to be kind people. And we pray, and we pray that the non-Jewish world should follow what God wants of them. We pray they should not break those laws as we pray for each other in the same way. So that's the answer. Another question. What should I say to a neighbor pressuring me to put up a BLM sign on my front lawn? Yeah. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I'm actually asking this question for a dear friend of mine. The question is as follows. My friend lives in a mostly black neighborhood and the Black Lives Matter signs are going up on the front lawns. Do you have any, a good one-liner, perhaps, to respond to the friendly, strong-minded, quote-unquote, friendly, strong-minded black woman that can at any moment request for my friend to put up a BLM sign? $5 donation for the movement. That's what the sign would say, I assume. On, on their front lawn. Obviously, we are, all, we are all for black lives as we are for all lives. And not, but not for the movement or the politics behind all of it. And don't want to get into all of this with the liberal black, quote-unquote, friendly neighbors. Thank you. Yeah, this is a very good question, an excellent question. And I'll just broaden the question. It doesn't just address BLM, it addresses many other matters. When things become so-called politically correct, 
or things become a pressure that may not be based necessarily on total truth, but politically it's been marketed and presented in a way, and they present it in a way that if anybody doesn't do what everybody else, if you're not for me, you're against me. When a climate like that is created, we have ourselves a lot of trouble. I could speak from my own personal experience. I remember writing an article when President Bush won the election. We're not talking about Trump, Bush. And I wrote a type of positive uh, article. I can't tell you how much hate mail I received. And it wasn't even a pro-Bush article. I was just against the politicization of it all. The, not to mention how it is today is a whole different, a whole different stratosphere. And people just would not accept my ability to write that. I, got, I had letters like a woman writing to me. 20 years I've been following you. You changed my life. You inspired me. I've discovered purpose, meaning, God. I built a family. How could you betray me such a way? I wrote back, of course. But it was like irrational. Like saying, so 20 years you trusted me and what, because I wrote this article, even if you disagree with me. So everything that, that you've learned from me that, we've been, that we have in common is gone. I, I mean, I wasn't surprised, but it, became, it comes to a point where you can't have a conversation. Like if you would say to this neighbor, look, I absolutely believe in the sanctity of every life, including black lives. I'm appalled like everyone at the killing of George Floyd, the murder by a policeman. I'm appalled at every murder. But I don't feel comfortable putting up a sign. You can't say it. I mean, you could say it, and I'll try to suggest ways to communicate, but I'm going to be honest. You say that, oh, you're my enemy. Maybe I have my reasons. Maybe, maybe if I put up that sign, they want people to put up other signs. There's no rational once a person gets into that point. You can't talk to a person. I mentioned it last week. You say, why don't we put up a sign that, that, uh, that, um, against anti-Semitism where a year ago, more than a year ago in Pittsburgh, a whole shul was shot up and so many people killed? or in Poway, or many other such tragic events, or in different schools, why don't, you, why don't we put up signs? As soon as you say that, you, you're, you're, you're rejected. More than rejected. You'll be blacklisted. So how do we navigate? How do we navigate when you can't have an intelligent conversation? So I'm not saying that's easy. That's why I said it's a good question. I don't have a black and white answer, to be honest. I will tell you how I would approach it. I would do it case by case. If, the, if she's a militant with all the niceties and will become a, a really, I mean, depends what, what the people are capable of doing, and you don't want to fight, they don't want to create hostility. So I would, not, I would not feel comfortable putting up a sign if I don't want to. But maybe you can find some way to placate her. I'm not sure how. Because the point is you want to diffuse the issue here. If the person is absolutely adamant and you can't have a conversation, I would probably try to get other neighbors involved that you could have a conversation with. Find someone that's not as intense. I would suggest just from left field, I would say, you know, I have an idea. I want to do something for the whole movement. I'm going to invite a speaker to this community who's going to speak on the sanctity of life, of all life. You know, try to deflect it through other methods. If she insists, no, I'd only assign, you could say, look, I've offered three, four different ways that I can help support in concept ways I'm comfortable with. Let's not make this an issue. Now, if she continues to make the issue, a choice has to be made. Either 
yes, she will consider you an enemy. I'm not saying that's the end of the world. So what? So she considers you an enemy. Um, that's that. Or she may be able to hear a little what you're saying. If you're strong about not putting it up, and I would tell you, if I was in your shoes, I would not put it up because I do know the politics behind the movement, and it's not all so pure, and I don't want to be pressured just because everybody is doing it, not because I'm against certain principles that we all agree upon, then I would, uh, I'd probably choose the path of let her be my enemy. If, if that's, if, you know, after all the rational speaking and suggesting other alternatives, suggesting different ways to support, you know, bring a rabbi, bring a good rabbi that speaks about the topic, but speaks in a way that you're comfortable with. I'm talking about you, not the, the neighbor. And invite her. That's how I think. I think the best way is always to go on the offense, not defense, because being on the defensive is the worst, because then you have to constantly find excuses. Uh, you, know, you always start saying, I'm thinking about it, I'll put it up. And she'll say, here's the sign, let's put it up together right now. What are you going to do? I would therefore say very clearly and bluntly and say, I'm not comfortable putting up the sign, but I am comfortable is something even better, is to bring a speaker or to some other way to, to, to create a community event. But don't politicize it. And you could say, I don't want to have any names on it. I want to talk about the sanctity of life. If they force you, to, they want to force you to suck you into their position, well, you know what? That would be like any party, whether Republican or Democrat or, 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 uh, or Marxist or whatever. Don't force me to be anything. I want to be who I am. That's what I'm, what I'm being practical about it. Now, the fact that you're in a community that's so uh, dominant about it, I think you're going to have problems either way because even if you put it up, don't think that that's going to placate because they don't see you probably as a Jew in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if this is a Jewish person writing. I just assumed it. Maybe not. But regardless, if they see you as an outsider, you're gonna, one thing is going to lead to the next. So I don't know how to deal with that issue because if you're among many people that are just doing something that you don't agree with, there's inevitable friction is going to happen. But I'd still stick to my guns and not necessarily cooperate and just do it, but in a pleasant way. That's the key. With a smile, deflecting, giving another suggestion. I would never get into a debate and never in an argument. That's vital. You don't want to fuel this. You want to uh, bypass it, deflect it as much as possible. A one-liner, a one-liner. A one-liner you can say, I don't put any signs on the, in my garden. I have children. I want everything to be here without signs. I don't know if that's going to fly. But uh, that... Uh, I mean, I don't have a one-liner. I would go with this approach that I just described. And every person, you never know, if you speak kindly and gently and without any aggressive defensiveness, you could end up being very successful. But there are always cases where you won't be. And, but, uh, but you still stand by your mates. At the same time, you try to accommodate in a way that you feel comfortable with. Now, I've had, I dealt with this. There are a lot of hot-button issues that are very complicated to talk about. You talk about Palestinians, you talk about the gay movement, you talk about many other things. They have to be very careful because you have your position, and we're not talking about homophobia, we're not talking about hatred. We're talking about you have your position, but they want you to have their position. You're not entitled to do it your way. And that becomes very complicated. So sometimes you have to be very wise and diplomatic, but the compromise is not what I would suggest ever. Compromise, you compromise in a practical level to make sure things are going to roll right. But I would not compromise on any deep principles. Now, of course, this gets more complicated when you say someone in your own family. But I mean, if your family member is a big supporter of BLM, 
or your family members support of other things that you adamantly disagree with. So there the, the plot thickens and it gets more complicated each case. But I think if you go with a bitl dikach siddisha approach, which is not looking to win, not looking to fight with you, we're looking for truth and let's talk about things and let's look at alternatives. If you keep that tone, a certain civility, a certain uh, maturity and kind tone, I find that it usually helps not in all cases, but many cases. And try to find allies that will help, that, that that tone will help you with. And they can sometimes somewhat abate the anger or the, the, the aggression or the strong-headedness of others in this uh, environment. Okay. Last week we spoke about volunteerism. And I said then that... Um, uh, I, I just briefly read it, but I, I felt it's a good letter that was written to me. I just didn't have time to read it. So with your permission, I'm going to read the letter now. Um, it's, it'll take a few minutes. Bear with me. But I thought it was good. There were a lot of good points. And since I like this platform to be not just my own words, but also welcoming your thoughts, your ideas, as a result, I really feel that uh, from time to time I'll read something a little longer than just a short note. The case for volunteerism. So I read the beginning of it, Holy Rabbi. I propose mandatory volunteerism for high school students as part of the way to help America heal. Yeah. Have you heard of, of someone burning down his own house because he was angry at society? Have you heard of someone who burns down his house because he doesn't like his room or is angry at his siblings? Probably not. But it does occur. But if it does occur we would probably agree that the person has some mental and emotional issues that need dealing with by some highly qualified experts. When I was a kid, an emotionally disturbed young man burned down a shul in our town. His parents were upstanding members of the community. It was tragic. He was institutionalized. He was institutionalized as he should have been. America is our home. Our fellow citizens are our proverbial fellow brothers and sisters. I look at my fellow brothers and sisters burning our home down and cry. I look at them in disbelief, in sadness, in pity, and in anger. Either they are mentally and emotionally disturbed, in which case I'm truly sad and full of pity, or they are healthy, in which case I'm truly angry. But you may say the rioters don't feel they are our siblings, they don't feel treated as siblings, and they don't feel at home. Here's my message. So much of what we feel comes from the narrative we live by, the stories we tell ourselves and the lessons we learn from our lived experiences. After moving from the town in which the, soul, the shul was burned down, my family moved to Crown Heights, Brooklyn, in the late 1980s. And I lived there throughout the 1990s until the mid-2000s. As a Hasidic Jew, members of the Jewish community, me included, were often victims of black anti-Semitism and violence. Our landlord and neighbor was robbed while driving, having his watch stolen and his body cut up with a razor. We would hear gunshots through the night and we would watch blacks go down our streets shooting weapons, often finding bullet casings on our front porch. We had an attempted robbery at our home. Thank God we chased the thief away before he managed to steal anything. We were victims of the anti-Semitic 1991 Crown Heights riots 
in which blacks threw bottles and other projectiles at us. During those riots, an Australian chassid was murdered because he was a Jew. Thereafter, a black man attempted to violate a woman in the Jewish community and killed her as she resisted leaving behind a widower, a, a widower and orphans. Often blacks screamed anti-Semitic slurs at us. In the year 2000, my wife was punched by a black man who seemed to want to steal her necklace until I turned around, screamed at him, and took up chase. Never once did a chassid try to rob, rape, or murder anyone in our community or beyond, as far as I know. More recently, there have been a spate of anti-Semitic attacks in Brooklyn and other Jewish areas of New York. Almost all, if not all, have been by blacks. At the same time, at the same time there were nice black people in our community and beyond. There were nice police officers, firefighters, EMTs, and paramedics, store clerks, and others of all skin colors. What lessons did I learn from this? What narrative do I tell myself and my children? I learned a few things. One is that all humans can do good, and all humans can do evil, irrespective of skin color. People of all skin colors can be good and kind or can be horrible and racist. I saw a correlation between the way people dressed and the way they acted. I saw a correlation between having God in one's life and how people behaved. Now, I could take a very different message from my lived experience. I could have sold myself to collectivist, community view. Blacks are thugs, anti-Semitic, thieves, rapists, and murderers. Certainly untrustworthy. While certainly some blacks are that, that stereotype would not be fair to blacks as a whole and would be little me. I would be less of a human being. Torah teaches us that all of humanity is made of the divine image and all of humanity is descended, is made in the divine image, and all of humanity is descended from one male and female progenitor. Our founding fathers, based on Judeo-Christian teachings, taught us that we are to look at people as individuals, not as collective. We all become better when we view each other in a, method, in a meritocracy based on the content of our character and the behaviors we exhibit. One of the behaviors the Lubavitcher Rebbe instituted for his chassidim was volunteer work, especially by teens and those in their early 20s. Each Friday, young men and women would reach out to their community and beyond, teaching and inspiring those with Jewish teachings and good deeds. I could see in my own life and the lives of my friends how this volunteerism lifted us to be a better version of ourselves. We weren't fooling around, wasting our free time. We were inspired to make the world a better place, one good deed at a time. My kids do different volunteerism for their high school diploma. They are required to volunteer with the police, ambulance crews, firefighters, animal welfare, are feeding the poor or feeding the poor. One of my kids volunteers with the fire department, the other with the ambulance corps. I've seen with my own eyes how they have grown, how they feel responsibility for the community. They have given of their time and efforts to the community and have thus become members of the community. The responsibility they have demonstrated has been their investment into it, and now with a stake in it, they have matured into caring young adults. When we volunteer our time and efforts in our neighborhoods and cities, our neighborhoods and cities become our homes. Our neighbors then become our proverbial siblings. When we volunteer, we give and thus take a share in the ownership. I think it's time all high school students are required to volunteer in their neighborhoods. I will do a heck of a lot of good, and it will do a heck of a lot of good and allow us to heal as a nation. Okay, I appreciate that, and I read in, in full because I feel a lot of good points made, and no, uh, no extra comment necessary here. Okay. Um, a, a question, another question. 
punishments. Why are there such brutal punishments in the Torah? The Meraglim, Korach, etc., which we read in the last few weeks' chapters. Why can't Hashem just reveal Himself and tell the people they're wrong and not punish them? Wouldn't that solve it without any such severe punishments? Very good question. And the answer, briefly, is something I've talked about a number of times. If you go to MeaningfulLife.com and look up punishment or ChassidusApplied.com, you'll find more material on this. But briefly, it's a misunderstanding of what punishment is. We answer a question with with a bigger question. God and the human race are not exactly have anything in common. God is beyond perfect. We are beyond imperfect. So what is, it doesn't make any sense. Why would God create a world with imperfect human beings? They make a mistake and he punishes them. What, what benefit does he have from that? And rewards them if they do good. What's the point? So the true meaning of reward and punishment, I would say, is cause and effect. When you put your hand in fire, the fire is not punishing you. Nature is not punishing you. God is not punishing you. Cause and effect. We live in a world that God created and said there are healthy modes of behavior and there are unhealthy modes of behavior. When you behave in a healthy way, you'll be a healthier person. When you behave in an unhealthy way, you'll be an unhealthier person. It's not a punishment. It's an effect of your behavior. What we need to understand is when things, people do certain things. You may think it's minor, but they've, in a sense, toxified their lives. The punishment is actually a way, why does a hand get burned when it touches a fire? Because the way the hand is protecting itself from the effects of fire. Just like when a person has fever or pain, pain is a way of the body warning you there's a problem. So it's not a punishment. So these behaviors by Korach, by the Miraglim and others, Instead of looking at it as a brutal punishment, I would look at it as a wake-up call. The Miraglim defied God. God said, I want you to go to the promised land. They said, we can't. They were asked how to go. They weren't asked whether to go. Yes, that was a very severe challenge because they're challenging the very purpose of existence. It would be like someone saying, no, I don't want to, I don't want to take on the challenges of life. It's too difficult. Korach was another. I'm not getting now into what their crimes were. But punishment is not some sort of... Actually, punishment is God's way. You say, why doesn't God reveal himself? That's how God reveals himself. He reveals himself by showing that the body has an immunity system, and when something goes wrong, what do you think fever is? It's the white blood cells that come to attack a germ. And that creates, that can create high fever, that can create pus, that can create different types of infections. Well, I should correct myself. An infection will be fought. It will create different attacks on the infection. It's all a process of healing, not a process of punishment. So that's how you have to look at it. Sometimes the crime is so great, the healing is not enough just to take an aspirin or put on a Band-Aid. You may need surgery. No one should know of it. So some crimes are really severe. So when a person, let's say, kills another person, God forbid, there is capital punishment. Not, Not that it's easy to get that because... There are a lot of conditions. In most cases, you can't even get someone to be, to be, to be um, sentenced to death. But why is there the concept of capital punishment? Because when you take a life, God forbid someone takes someone's life, they forfeited their own life. That means their life has become so defiled 
that's not worth living. Only God can make that decision. Or to protect others. So we're not talking about a punishment just to get even with you. It's a healing process. I hope that's sufficient. There's more to say on the topic, but we'll suffice with that. Okay. Can you please discuss the concept? I want to say one more thing about that before. Remember, Torah's chesed. The Torah is a Torah of kindness. God gave the entire Torah to bring peace to the world. So you can't have anything in the Torah that's going to be antithetical to bringing peace and to be kind. Sometimes the kindness takes on pain. If someone has a splinter, the only way is to cut it out. It's going to be painful. So if you only see the pain, you're right. Why should you, why should you be causing someone pain? But you're not. You're looking for a way to get rid of the problem. And that's just a little additional uh, point I wanted to make. Can you please discuss the concept of anti-namianism? Anti-namianism. Such as when Pinchas violated the Torah rule against murder, but due to the circumstances, he was rewarded instead of punished. So anti-nominism is that there's a set of laws and a, a due process in a court of law. You don't take the law in your own hands. There's no lynch mobs. There's no just uh, vigilantes. There's no such thing. Zealotry doesn't have a room in this context. I mentioned Torah's chesed. The Torah says someone's accused of something. There's a process, a due process. Here Pinchas went and just spared Zimri and the woman he was desecrating God's name in front of everybody. And he's rewarded for it. So it's a good question. Seems to suggest there's a concept of vigilante justice. Lynch mob. However, a few points. You never hear this case again. If this is the case that Pinchas did it, why didn't afterwards... Other vigilantes just follow us and say, we do what Pinchas does. It's a once in a time, once in an entire Torah exception. The interesting thing is, you know, you know what reward Pinchas gets? Shalom, peace. So I once discussed this at length. I think there's some articles and classes on this. Peace? He did something, yes, let's say it's justifiable. He was desecrating God's name and Pinchas acted, no one else did. But what kind of reward is peace? If anything, be rewarded with other things. He didn't do a peaceful act. The answer is because Pinchas was a peaceful person. He was the last person that would ever take a spear. If it was an aggressive person, like we talk about Shimon, one of the tribes, he was an aggressive personality. And that's why Yaakov had the issue with that. And, and his blessings, he refers to it. Yasef put him into prison because he knew he's aggressive. He's still aggressive in a holy way. But him and Levi did the, that to Shechem. They slaughtered the people of Shechem, they had an aggression to them. So you see an aggressive person suddenly comes and spears, you start saying, is this because of God or because of his personality? But Pinchas was a mild manner, a very sheepish, vile manner person. He was completely not capable of something like this. So you know clearly that he did it because he could not stand God's name being desecrated. And yes, this is a one-time thing to show that there are times that you need such a mysterious nefesh, but it's not a regular thing. Nobody can come and just behave like Pinchas and say, Pinchas did it. It's teaching us that concept, like when the Friedrich Rebbe in prison, 
when he was before Yud Beis Tammuz that we just honored, was very adamant, even in things that he could have been more lenient. It was the type of idea that at times you have to put your foot down. Now there, it wasn't, God forbid, in a way of doing anything wrong in Torah. It was the, concept, the, the opposite. But it shows a need of sometimes to go in that type of extent, to that extent. So it's a one-time thing and not to be learned from, and it does not in any way negate due process, because if anything ever happens, a person has to, has to be brought with witnesses in a court of law and so on. Here, Zimri was desecrating God's name, was coming right after the story with Bilam. It was in front of everybody. It was a chil Hashem of the highest order, a desecration of God's name, and he acted. So we don't justify this approach, but in this case, this one case, he's rewarded with peace because that's what he was. He came from a peaceful place. He wasn't this warrior just attacking anyone, even, when, even if there's a, a, a best uh, justification behind it. Okay, a few follow-ups. One follow-up was about masks, which I spoke about last week. So someone writes, a guten Rabbi Jacobson. Firstly, Yeshukarech, for the continuous flow of great teuchen that you bring us, content. Regarding this, week's, uh, this past week's episode, you brought up a question about masks and specifically in 770. I feel like perhaps it would have been better not to address this. You clearly kept saying you're not here to rule on this, on it, but at the same time, the general direction was a strong insinuation that all these daveners without masks are doing something detrimental to the general health of society. Why should you take such a stance on such a, an official pa- platform? After all, this, that one needs to follow Allah and listen to Arav, you mentioned countless t- other times, so of course it applies here as well. But by speaking about it in the way you did, it's almost as you were challenging to find, to find a rov that will allow you not to wear it. it ha- I happen to know a rov who isn't makpid, that one wears masks, meaning he's not, he's not insisting on it. But aside from that, what about those who say that masks drop oxygen levels by a lot? Dangerously, perhaps. What about the fact that most of Crownites has antibodies? Shouldn't life resume again? Can't normal see rain? The vulnerable indeed must continue to be wary, maybe wear masks and all precautions. But just like we drive in cars, even though it's a deadly machine, so too should we live like, we should live like mentioned, and maybe need be, apply, Shem Epsoyim Hashem. That God protects the, 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 the simples, the simpletons. I'm sure you've realized that recently people are less trusting of government, medical professionals, quote-unquote, and as a result a bit wary of Rabbonim as well, considering that most of their information is based on them and they must act responsibly, etc. I understand that this may be your position as well, but I think it would have been better not to approach the subject considering that much, that much weight was given to the condemning side, quote-unquote. It's a shame that camps are a mess for so many. It's a shame that even next year's plans are so uncertain for many. It's sad that we need to come down now now, on base Abenish of after months of unprecedented closure and demand, even nicely and politely, that they continue acting upon the whims of governments who've already ruined so much good. As a side note, I personally usually take a mask when going out on a train, Lamashal, for example, because it's potential Chil Hashem. And this too is unfortunate. Anyway, thanks for reading, and I hope I've clearly made my point. I apologize if the tone wasn't as pleasant as it should be. I want to add that I really enjoyed your clear, unbiased take on the BLM that followed. Last, this is all about last week's. Uh, so let me respond. 
Yes, halacha is halacha and should be dealt with by Rabbanim. There is a thin line when we do Chesmaila Chesidus applied. I make it very clear and I stand by that. This is not a, I play a bima for psak halachas, for, for ruling. First of all, this is an online program and ruling has to be done case by case. There's a Torah way to do it. You go to Arav, you present all the details, you can ask questions until you come to clarity. So if there's a psak, I'll be happy to repeat the psak from Arav. But that's why this is not the place I'm going to go paskin on things. Unless I'm repeating, as I said, some psak somewhere. At the same time, there's a thin line because when you're dealing with issues that either Rabbanim haven't ruled on yet, or there's ambiguity, or there's different Rabbanim's opinions. So I tried to frame the subject. This is a big topic for many people today. Masks, no masks. In shul and not shul. I'm not taking any sides. If it came across that I was on one position, it's absolutely wrong. But I was presenting there is an issue here. Some people feel that masks should be worn. I'm not going to rule on that. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a rov. And I've heard the arguments both ways. So the question has to be, what is a rov going to say? Since I get these questions, many people trust this platform. So I read the question, and I try to make a suggestion. Perhaps it's, yes, perhaps it's necessary that people put their heads together and come up. And now if the rov comes out and says, you go to 770, you must wear a mask, you may not agree with him. But that's what he says. If he doesn't say that, and he says you don't need, that's also we go with, whether we like it or not. We could always criticize. That's not what the goal here is. I'm trying to shine light, clarity. Many people say, I love the clarity that you bring. Clarity, clarity. Is, let's put this topic on the table. And let's address it from all angles. I honestly have no agenda here. Not this way, not that way. I don't sell masks, and I don't buy masks. I've, yes, I wear a mask when they ask me to wear a mask. I'll wear one. Obviously, I'm not wearing one now because it's not necessary. So, so I just want to make it clear, that my intention here is just clarity. And put the questions on the table. Sometimes you frame the question correctly, and then the people that have to answer, answer. I also say very often case by case. Not just Rabbanim, case by case, because one answer doesn't always fit everybody. So I hope that clarifies that. One more follow-up. Slavery. This was in episodes 314 and 315. If everything in the Torah is the word of God, and God is completely good, and the Torah allows certain forms of slavery, then why don't we have these forms of slavery today? Was the word of God only good thousands of years ago, but not in modern times? Okay, so first of all, let me explain. When I spoke about this back then, I didn't use the word slavery. I said that's not a good word to use. An Eved can be better defined as a servant. And we all know servant elicits a different reaction than slave. Whatever, because of language, meaning, whatever you want to say. The point I'm making here is that, yes, this Elim Mishpatim talks about the laws of servitude. And talks about, it, frankly, not always in a positive light. There was such a concept. Today also, you can say a maid, a cleaning lady, a chauffeur, a delivery boy. Is that a servant? So we wouldn't call it a slave because a slave sounds to us like this total control. Someone has control over another person's life. Here the person has chosen to do the work and they get paid for it, but they are serving. They're not the boss. So firstly, there is elements of servitude today. Plenty of us do service. We're in services. Sometimes it's an elegant job, sometimes not so elegant. Above all, the Torah itself says the conditions when these laws apply. So once the Torah says conditions, you go by those conditions. Generally speaking, yes, the laws that were then are not applicable today. We live in a different type of world. 
different conditions, different environment. And in general, servitude is never looked upon in the best way. When a Jew sold himself into, slave, into servitude in order to pay his bills or debts, etc., etc., it was not a positive. And when he wanted to stay, the Torah says, you, make a, you uh, pierce his ear, because this is the ear that heard, you should be my servant, not the servant of my servants. What does that all teach us? That it's not something that necessarily is l'chatchila. So you have to go into the specific halachas and you'll see where it applies, where it doesn't apply. A lot of it does not apply today for many good reasons. And halacha talks about it as well. You look in the Rambam, you look in other Sfarim that talk about what applies and what doesn't apply. Like many things are conditioned when the Beis Amikdash was there and, um, and other conditions when all the Jews were in Eretz There are different rulings, different conditions rather, necessary in each particular situation. Okay. Um, I think we're going to, let me see if there's anything else I will address. Yeah, you know what I'm going to do? Okay. We're going to conclude now. I want to wish everyone that in these days of the three weeks I talked at the beginning about transforming it, the Rebbe, one of his real contributions that you see that you don't see in previous generations, took the three weeks and said, whatever we can do to transform it, a piyatera, of course, we have to do. And this included learning tera, additional tera, giving additional tzedakah, learning specifically the laws of the Beis HaMikdash, the book of Yecheskel, Beis HaMikdash Ashlishi, the Mesech Midis. And Gemara and Rambam, Hilchus Beis Abchira. Rebbe instituted this in the mid 70s, 75, 76, and would actually explain a Rambam, explained Mismechtemidis in those years. These are ways that we transform the deeper hidden good even in the dire straits of the three weeks. So, practical suggestion from the Rebbe himself to increase in Teira, increase in Zdokad, both of those redeem and free the sparks in Bein HaMitzvahim that we should be able to transform it into great, powerful, positive forces. And especially within this pandemic and the upheavals that we're facing, how much more so. So God bless you all that you should have the Kayach and we should use these days properly. And it should be Yehovchi Yomamel L'Sasun L'Simcha L'Mayedim Tevim. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. This has been My Life, Chassidus Applied, chassidusapplied.com for all the resources I mentioned earlier. Everyone have a very blessed and a very healthy, very meaningful week. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.